0: So, we covered a lot of ground last week, and if you'll permit me a couple minutes, I'd like to retread some of that because last week we talked about the concept of sacred space in two ways. One was as an illustration of why it is important to filter our New Testament through our Old Testament and to understand that from a context standpoint. And I did have a chance to have some conversations with some of you last week, and it, it sounds like that it, we, we accomplished that, which is, which is great. It had an impact on how you think about some of these things, and so that's definitely good. The other part of my overall goal for these two weeks, because they're kind of, a, kind of a, a package deal, is that I want rather than going deep and and looking verse by verse on a specific passage, I really want to, again, be sort of all over the place because I want us to widen our understanding of how the Bible is one cohesive story. It has themes that run through the entire thing that get picked up and you hear echoes of over and over again, that everything in the Bible is on purpose. And also that I, I would... I would want each of you to leave here today with a more comprehensive understanding of what the spiritual landscape in the world actually is, based on these ideas from last week and things that we're going to look at this morning, because it surrounds us every day. And if we don't have a proper understanding of the way it actually is, it's going to impact how we think and how we act, and so on and so forth. So that's what we're here to do. So this week, what I want to do is to, to take that concept of sacred space and to, to basically carry it forward and to focus on some, some practical application to us. Because we looked at how the Old Testament applies to the New Testament last week, but now I want to sort of start in the New Testament and, and bring that forward to, so what does that have to do with us today? What spiritual realities are realities, for us, because of all the things that, that are in place. And so I want to look at three distinct topics through our time. One is going to be evangelism, one is going to be spiritual warfare, and the other is going to be baptism, and how they all tie actually into this concept of sacred space, and, and into each other. And Honestly, I think most of us could already see how concepts of evangelism and baptism tie together. They're always listed together. It's sort of a chronological progression that we see in Scripture all the time. So that, I think, intuitively makes sense to us. And we probably could see the connection between evangelism and spiritual warfare, especially if we're talking about evangelism in a spiritually dark or oppressive place where there's a lot of... Dark, evil, spiritual activity that's just oppressive. What I don't think that most of us would intuitively connect is this idea of spiritual warfare and baptism. (laughs) That just, it's the record scratch moment, right, for a lot of us. But I hope that after today, you will always think of it in those terms. Because I, I do believe that that is actually what it is, and that's actually what's going on. So... Let's refresh quickly on some major thematic concepts from last week. Go with me to Genesis chapter 11. And really what we're talking about for context is all of Genesis chapter 10, which is a genealogy. It's a list of the nations. From the writer's perspective, the entire world as they knew it to be. But it's a list of genealogies and the nations that came from the descendants of Noah And that immediately in in Genesis 11 leads into the Tower of Babel. So, quickly, we're just going to read two verses because we don't have time to go through the entire thing. And you're probably glad I'm not going to read an entire chapter of genealogy. Let's start in verse 8 of Genesis 11. This is at the very end. So, God sees that rather than obey his command to spread out, to replicate Eden, basically, everywhere, which is what he told Noah, which is what he told Adam and Eve. Instead, the people clumped together, and they refused to obey. So God says, that, that ain't going to work. <laughs> so in verse 8 of chapter 11, it says, So the Lord dispersed them, or scattered them, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is a great scattering that happens in Genesis 11. And it is one of the reasons that then sets up another piece of the puzzle that we're going to look at. Because part of the Babel story that is super important for understanding the way the world is, the, the, way, the, the reason why the, way the, the world is the way it is, I can get there eventually, is not found in Genesis chapter eleven. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two. So let's hop back over there and let's let's look at that one more time. Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, and we're going to be in verses eight and nine. Deuteronomy thirty-two, eight and nine. It says, "When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance." Pause. Inheritance is what you earn. Right? So the, the idea here is that because of what happened at Babel, the nations earned this. This is what they got as a just reward for what they did, right? He divided mankind. When did that happen? It happened at Babel. So this is our context. He, the Most High, fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. The Hebrew there is B'nai, sons Elohim. We're going to revisit that in a sec. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. So the picture is because of Babel and that disobedience, God basically kicks the nations out of the house and says, I'm giving you to someone else. And it's not a reward. It's a punishment. I'm giving you over to these spiritual beings called the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. They are spiritual beings who are not me, but they're going to rule over you instead because I can't even with you right now. You just won't obey, no matter how many chances I give you. And I'm going to make a nation for myself out of nothing so no one can take credit for it, and they're going to be my people. And I'm going to use them to impact and influence the nations. This is the, this is the separation that happens in Deuteronomy 32. One more passage, though, that kind of sets up our picture. Hop over with me to, to the book of Psalms chapter 82. Or Psalm 82, I should say. And we're going to look at the first two verses in Psalm 82. So, so far, human disobedience, spiritual beings other than God put in charge of those nations to rule them. But then we get to, we get to the, 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 the part where it all goes sideways. Psalm 82, 1 and 2. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, again, in the Hebrew, the language in verse 1 is, God has taken his place in the council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. So we're talking about these same spiritual beings, and they have not done their job. They've not done what God asked them to do and gave them the nations to do. Instead, they have been wicked. They've been unjust. They've begun to accept worship for themselves. If you continue to read the context there. And so, this is a problem. God says, this is not what you were given this task to do. You have been corrupt, and you have led your peoples into corruption and away from me. Now, Let's look at a passage like Genesis 10. And again, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna read it. But when we hit a genealogy, normally, for being honest, we skip over it because we just don't really know how it ties into what we're reading, other than if the end of the genealogy is Jesus, right? But in this case, that's not what's going on. So it's a list of names. And again, if we're being honest, it's that that list of names might as well be a list of Pokemon to most of us, because we don't know who these people are. We don't know how they fit in. We have no idea why is this here, but we have to remember that the biblical authors did not have a word count, right? They're not trying to pad their writing to hit a certain number. So everything that's in there is there for a reason. We just need to understand what that reason is. Now, there's, I'm sure, more than this, but for our purposes this morning, I want to look at one particular reading, or or one particular reason if this list in Genesis 10 encompasses the nations, right, the whole world, if you count them, and it depends on who's counting, because there is differences amongst the, the Hebrew rabbis about this, but you come to the, the nations are either 70 or 72 nations that are listed in this passage, depending, again, on how you count. Keep that in mind for later, okay? It's either 70 or 72, depending on who's counting. So, again, reviewing from last week, the biblical narrative that we can piece together from all of this and and pulling these pieces together is this. God created a spiritual family of spiritual beings to rule and reign with him before he created a human family to rule and reign with him. Again, God doesn't need any of us, but he created us so that we could participate with him in what he's doing because God enjoys that and he thinks it's good for us too. And so we know this from passages like uh, Job chapter 38. Hop over there with me real quick. Job chapter 38. This is when Job is getting the what for from God. God finally answers Job. And he doesn't actually directly answer him, but he just he starts asking Job a series of questions that honestly, they just humble him, put him in his place. But here's what's important for our, for our purposes here. Job chapter 38, verses four through seven. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, shouted for joy. When God was creating, the Elohim were there. They were watching and they were rejoicing. They They were passively participating in this. And so we know that these spiritual beings exist. But it's important to, to distinguish that every single one of them was created by God. And I can prove that to you that, that this Elohim concept isn't anything more than just a word that the Hebrews would use to designate a member of the spiritual realm. So we're going to jump to one more, one more passage in 1 Samuel chapter 28. For context, this is when Saul tricks the witch of Endor, who was a medium, which was illegal, punishable by death, into conjuring up the spirit of Samuel. Because Saul has a problem, and he needs to ask Samuel a question. Samuel's not happy about it. But what we see in 1 Samuel 28, verses, let's just look at verses 12 through 14. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, because she thought she was going to die now. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage Did Samuel become a god? Did he become deified just because he died? Because when she says, I see a god coming out, do you know what the Hebrew word is? Any guesses? Elohim. I see an Elohim coming up. So that should tell us that that because something is an Elohim, that doesn't mean anything other than it is a member of the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. That's it. That's all it designates. Samuel didn't become a god just because he died, but because he died and now he's in the spiritual realm, he is an Elohim. And if you and I die, we will become an Elohim just by definition. That we are now in part of the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. So here's what that means. It means that because that these Elohim were given to the nations as their gods, they might play at being gods, but they're not. Not really. They might be powerful, but they aren't omnipotent. They might be clever. They are not omniscient. And they would most definitely be more than you or I could handle on our own. But they're nothing compared to their creator. Amen. I want you to see that because I don't want any of you to get the impression that the, the Old Testament Israelites had any concept of God and his uniqueness in the spiritual world that's any different than how you or I think of God today. Right? Because if you trace this idea of the Elohim throughout the Old Testament, what you see is that Elohim just means a member of the spiritual realm. So by definition, Yahweh, the Most High, is an Elohim because he's a spiritual being. But no other Elohim is God. That makes sense, right? He is unique amongst all of the spiritual beings. So even though, yeah, they exist, and even though they're put in charge, they're not Anywhere close to him. And they never will be, no matter what they think about it. So the Bible has always presented God this way, always. And the Hebrews never ever conceived of God any differently than this. He is alone, he is unique, he is the most high. In fact, in, in the creation account, even though the sons of God were there, the the and that language is us and they, and you have this plural language, the language of creation is always singular. God alone creates, not them. So I just want us to be clear on that because that uh, that was actually a question that, it was a good question that came up after service last week, and I just wanted to clarify that. So, back on track with our application. Uh, We're going to do this again. I want you to pair up in groups of like three to four. That's not pairing. I want you to group up in, in groups of three to four. And I'm going to give you just a couple minutes to discuss two questions amongst yourselves. And then we're, we're going we're to throw some answers out there. Here they are. When Jesus came, what was he here to fix? And... Part, the second question, based on your answer or answers to that question, what was Jesus here to fix when he was here? Where did that problem come from in the first place? If you can trace it to a passage in the Bible. Okay? So those two questions. What was Jesus here to fix when he came? And where did that problem come from in the first place? So go ahead, take just a couple minutes, discuss amongst yourselves, and then... We'll, we'll talk about it. Take maybe one more minute, one more minute. All right, let's, let's wrap it up, and we'll bring it back here. And super informal, because I'm super informal. So we'll just throw it out there, popcorn style. Anyone, everyone, what was Jesus here to fix? Sin. Anything else? Relationship. Relationship between who? Us and God. Okay. What else? Yeah, he came to show us who God, actually, who God really is. Any other thoughts? Is that, is that pretty much incapped? Something else? Save us from Say that again? Save us from yeah, he came to save us, right? So we could have eternal life and be with him. So, yeah. And the, uh, spiritual oh, Tony, you're reading from my script, dude. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. So, let's go to the next question. So, that's the problem. Where do we find that problem? Where did that problem even come from? Genesis, Genesis where? Three. Genesis 3. The fall, right? Okay. Now, that I would say you are, you are tracking completely with what 99% of people would say if you, were, you asked them those questions, right? Ask any Christian, what's the problem? The problem is sin. Why did Jesus come? To save us from our sin. And where did that happen? Genesis 3. It's the fall. That is not wrong. So we're not rewriting, we're not reading right now, okay? That's correct. I'm just going to submit to you that that is a partial understanding of why Jesus came. That is absolutely one of the problems that Jesus came here to fix. And we find its root in Genesis 3. But if you were to ask a Hebrew, an ancient Israelite, why is the world the way it is? They wouldn't just give you one answer. They would give you several. One of them would be Genesis 3, right? Something's broken with us. Because of Genesis 3. But, but, there's also other problems. And one of those problems stems from Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Because, if that's the case, then in addition to us being broken, we are also under the influence of spiritual beings who are corrupt, who are leading us into areas that are going to perpetuate that brokenness, make things even worse than they would have been otherwise, okay? Okay? And I'll throw this thought out there. Because of that, I I really believe that there is a lot of Jesus' ministry that won't make sense to us if Genesis chapter 3 and fixing the sin problem is the only thing that we have in view when we look at what Jesus said and what he did. Because Jesus did everything on purpose, he did everything for a specific reason. But if we don't understand why that happened, then because we don't have the broader picture of why Jesus was here, not everything that Jesus said and did fits into the sin box. And that can leave us confused. So, let's take a look. Hop with me to Luke chapter 10. Because Jesus was here to fix that problem too. Luke chapter 10. And for now, it's actually the first, the first 12 verses. But I want us to just look at the very first verse of Luke chapter 10. We're going to have a connection moment. Jesus, or after this, the Lord appointed how many? 72. Or 72, because <laughs> there's manuscripts that say both, Right? And he sent them out two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. They are going to do evangelism. And Jesus gives them instructions for how they're to do it and what that process is to look like. But how many many followers did Jesus have? We think of the the 12 disciples, but he had more than that, right? It says at one point he had multitudes of people following him. So I'm going to guess that that was, you know, more than 70 or 72. So why in the world would Jesus, because again, he did everything on purpose. Why would he pick this number? Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Where is the gospel going to go? To the Jew first, but then to all the nations. Jesus is telegraphing, because he tells his disciples before he sends them out. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Honestly, I'm not sure that the wolves he's talking about are the people that they're going to encounter. I really don't think that that's the case. Because the people that they're going to encounter are actually referred to as the harvest, which is plentiful. So who are the wolves? Maybe, maybe these guys. And I don't think that's just a hunch, because hop down with me to, the, to verse 20, Luke 10:20. After they come back, and these guys are excited because they've, had, they've experienced great spiritual victory. We know that I think this is what Jesus has in mind because in verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that what? The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So why did Jesus send 70 or 72 out? Because he's he's thinking of Genesis 10 and 11. Why is he thinking of Genesis 10 and 11? Because what are they declaring when they go out? They're declaring that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is telegraphing to these spiritual beings over the nations something very specific. He's sending a message. He's saying, guess what, Elohim? Your time is up. My kingdom is here now. And it's going to conquer yours. It's coming, and there's nothing that you can do about it. I'm the rightful ruler, and I'm taking back what's mine. Wow. Okay, then, Jesus. That's pretty, that's pretty intense. So there's another way that this ties in to the nations and how we should understand evangelism. We're not going to read them, but I'm going to give you some references in case you want to look at, at them later. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33 Again, I'm throwing all these, all these great books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy at you. You're just going to have to give up and read the whole thing. I mean, it's probably the only way to be sure. Deuteronomy 4.27 and Deuteronomy 28.64. Two more. Nehemiah 1.8 and Esther 3.8. Now, the concept here that we see back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is that God promises Israel, his people, if you don't obey me, if you do, you're going to be blessed. And I'm going to be abundant in how I bless you. But if you don't obey me, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to scatter you out amongst the nations. And again, what's that language of scattering should make us think of? Genesis 10 and 11, right? When the peoples were scattered, they were dispersed. He says, if you don't, I'm going to do the same thing to you. Right? You're not above consequences for disobedience. It's exactly what happened to them. And in Nehemiah and Esther, we're on the back end, right? Because they have been scattered. They have been. What happens uh, first, right? The northern tribes of Israel, which was a, a, an apostate kingdom after the, the United Monarchy split after David and Solomon into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The northern tribes get conquered by Assyria. And Assyrian practice, whenever they conquered anyone, was to try and keep the the, the revolutions to a minimum, is they would take people from a place they conquered and they would send them to some other place, which is a land they had no idea, they'd never been before. And they would take people from another place and they would bring them here. And they would, they would mix and match, and they would do the toss salad thing with all these peoples because if you're living in a place that isn't your home, what do you care if, it, if they get it back, right? It's not a bad idea. But because of that, the Assyrians scatter; They dispersed the ten northern tribes of Israel pretty much everywhere. And the Assyrians at that point were the guys. They were like the Romans during Jesus' time. Later on, the southern tribes get conquered by Babylon. And they go off to the captivity in Babylon. Now here's the question in Nehemiah and in Esther, who comes back? Who comes back? Because in, in Deuteronomy 30, God promises that if they remember him, if they're faithful, he will bring them back and he will restore that relationship and he will unify Israel again. Who comes back, though, after all the exiles? Just Judah. Just Judah. The southern two tribes. In fact, in Jesus' day, the Jews still considered themselves to be in exile because the northern tribes never returned. They never came back. They were still out there amongst the nations, right? So the prophecy that was also tied into the Messiah, by the way, had not, never been fulfilled. The Messiah was supposed to unite all of Israel, all of it. And that was still not the case. So... Uh, that all changes, though. Because I know a lot of us, even then, some of, uh, some of what's out there can going to be like, well, you know, that's just not going to happen until Jesus comes back. That's, that's a down-the-road, end-times kind of thing. I'm going to submit to you that that's actually not the case, that it's already happened. And it's already happened in the Bible. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Off the top of your heads, does anyone know what Acts chapter 2 is talking about? Right after, right after Jesus sends, the disciples are alone. This is Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells and and indwells believers for the first time, permanently. This is when they become sacred space. And as a result of that, they begin to preach. And they begin to, to preach in different languages that they, that they didn't know, that they'd never spoken before. And the people who are in Jerusalem for the feast for, for, uh, for that time are hearing it, and some of them are saved. But we kind of skip over verse 5 because, again, we're going to make a connection. Who was there in Jerusalem? Verse 5 of Acts chapter 2. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, no surprise there, but devout men from every nation under heaven. They came back for for the festival, for the feast. This is when all the nations are represented. Israel has been reunited during this time. And it's at that moment that God chooses to send the Holy Spirit for the disciples to speak in tongues and for all of these folks to get saved, 3,000 of them. And they were confused by it. it said they thought they were drunk at first. And Peter's like, you have no idea. And then he quotes the prophet Joel. He says, no, 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 you have no idea. This was coming. This was always going to happen. This is the fulfillment of this prophecy. God has reunited Israel. And now he has done what he promised he would do in Deuteronomy 30. He, he is circumcised, as God says in Deuteronomy 30, will circumcise your hearts. That is what's happening when Renew and regeneration is happening. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, you are a new creation. And that happens there. And then what happens after that? They don't stay in Jerusalem. They go back to their homes. It came to the Jews first, just like Jesus said it would. And then it goes out to the nations. At Pentecost, not only is prophecy fulfilled and all Israel is reunited for the first time since the exile. Exile's over. But now... All of those Jewish Christians go back to the nations like little cell groups. And they start the reclamation process of the nations from Pentecost forward. That is what the missionary journeys were doing, going into Gentile and and, uh, pagan nations. That is what is still occurring today, is the recovery and the reclamation of the nations from spiritual darkness into the kingdom of God. The conquering is happening. Okay, side note, have any of you ever, as we're talking about missionary journeys and things like that, have any of you ever read Paul's letters, especially his later letters, and wondered why the heck he was so obsessed with getting to Spain? He talks about it like constantly. He's talking about the Romans. He's like, yeah, I'm going to come see you in Rome on my way to Spain, and even when he's in prison in Rome for the second time, he's like, once I get out of here, I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to, you know, go see what that's all about and, and bring the gospel to them. Why? Why, would, why specifically Spain? Because Paul knew Genesis 10. He knew his Old Testament. If you take Acts and the places where the gospel goes, right down to the, the sort of passing story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You know there was a Jewish... Uh, group in Ethiopia as part of that exile, right? If you go and you trace all the place names that are listed in Acts throughout the book of the missionary stops, and you overlay that over the place names from Genesis 10, what you find is without missing a single one, the gospel is brought to people starting furthest east and working its way west at every point. Not a single one is left out, except one, Tarshish, which in Paul's day was known as Spain. Paul knew what his job was. He knew what his job was, and he was he was going to be darned if he wasn't going to get there, right? And there's even some church tradition that says that he did. Paul just couldn't have known that the world was so much bigger than he thought, right? But Paul understood what the mission was. If we're going to reclaim the nations, I have to get to every one of them, and that's what he was doing. That was his mission. That was his goal. And it's because he understood what was going on from a spiritual perspective. So, all that is a ton of context. (laughs) All that's a ton of context. Here's our our first kind of big application, evangelism. The recovery of the nations is still underway today. I don't know if we really, because again, as we talked about it, I'm not sure that most of us realize what evangelism actually is. And when we talk about it, we, we, we say what you do when you're evangelizing, right? You, you, you share the gospel with someone. You tell them that Jesus died for them so that they can have a right relationship with him. And their sins can be forgiven and that they can be part of God's family and part of his kingdom. And that, all that's right. But it's like describing a cake to someone just listing off the ingredients. That's not going to do the job of explaining to someone what is actually going to... That's not what evangelism is. That's what we do in evangelism. What evangelism is, is declaring to people who are currently, in our time, living under illegitimate, defunct, spiritually oppressive influence, that they don't have to obey them anymore. There was a time when they did. Back in the Old Testament, we see this. You can jot this down and look at it later. Deuteronomy 29, 26. When the consequences of disobedience are being shared with Israel, one of the things it's said is that one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to be scattered and you're going to be sent into the nations and you're going to end up worshiping the gods that were allotted to them. Again, what does that make us think of? That's Deuteronomy 32. That's Psalm 82, right? So in the Old Testament economy, they got those, those gods were legitimate, legitimate rulers of those people. That was a punishment for them. But since Jesus, that is no longer the case. They are illegitimate. They have no power, despite whatever they say. Anything that they would say to the contrary would be a lie. But the idea of evangelism is we are declaring to people that that time has passed. You don't have to be under them anymore. You don't have to be under their influence or their control anymore. There is one legitimate ruler of all the nations. And he's not just asking that you come back. He's he's demanding it because he's the only legitimate ruler. Right? Right? And they have no claim over you anymore. So it's time to come home. That is what evangelism is. When we are sharing the gospel, that is what we are saying from a spiritual landscape perspective. It's time to come home. You can be done with this. They, don't have, they can't tell you what to do anymore. There's one ruler, one God and you were always supposed to be part of his family, guess what? You can be now. He's made that possible for you, for every one of us. So come home. So this leads into our next big application. And I think at this point we can understand, based on all this, how spiritual warfare ties into this. (laughs) Because if that's what's actually going on with evangelism, they're not happy about that. I mean, they, they can't really do anything about it. But that doesn't mean that they're going to they're take it lying down. Right? They know how this ends. They know what the score is. But they're going to go down swinging. Because they're going to hurt as many people as they can on the way down. And because you and I are, are trying to do the opposite. We're, we're conquering their turf. And we're taking it back for who it really belongs to. And the people under it, they hate us. Because they see us as traitors. They see us as uh, God's favorite. They see us as rivals. And do you know why that is? Do you know in the Old Testament, sons of God, b'nei Elohim in Hebrew, only ever refers to these spiritual beings. Did you know that we in the New Testament, become, we get called sons of God? That's because in God's economy in the new creation, we replace them. They're not happy about that. They don't like us very much. Because we're, taking, we're going to take their jobs. In fact, we already have. So they're going to do everything in their power to stifle, to stop, to put up roadblocks for this. And so evangelism, the very act of having spiritual conversations with people, is spiritual warfare. Because you're putting a target on your back when you do that. It doesn't mean we have really anything to worry about. I just want us to understand what's happening and what is going on with that. They hate you for this. Amen. And they always will. But so what, right? So what? This is where we tie into baptism, and I think you're going to find this interesting. Obviously, evangelism and baptism, those go together. Does God need us to be baptized to know what's in our heart? Not at all. And I know that we have oftentimes thought of baptism as a way of communicating outwardly to others that we have decided to to stand for Christ. But I'm going to submit to you that that is not even primarily who it is that we're making a declaration to when we are baptized. I think what's going on, again, if this is all tied together, God knows your heart. I think it's a declaration to the other side that you have picked a side and it isn't theirs. You have drawn a line in the sand And you have stepped over it. And you say, here I am with Jesus now. I don't belong to you anymore. Do something about it if you can. And they can't, right? That's the point. But that is what baptism is. is. It is actually making that declaration, I'm over here now. Deal with it. Right? So sharing the gospel, making disciples... Doing all this stuff, this is not just for people who have the gift of evangelism. Because if you are a Christian, if you've been baptized, you're, you're part of it. You're part of this spiritual chess game that's going on, right? And we know how it ends. But in the meantime, there are people out there who need to hear this. There are people out there who are lost, who are being manipulated, who are being controlled and led astray. And it's our job to tell them what the score is. Because they're not going to get the truth from the other side. This also means that when we think about people, as difficult as some people can be, they are not the enemy. They're not the enemy. The real enemy are the spiritual forces who are still at work, who are on their way out but are going to try and hurt as many people as they can while that's happening. So the people that you and I encounter, the people that we talk to, they are not the enemy They are victims of the enemies that we have. I want you to think of them this way. And maybe we've never thought of of the people that we we see in the world every day. If this whole spiritual landscape is the way things actually are, then these folks are hostages with Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) Right? Right? And again, part of that has to do with Genesis 3, that this is sort of a way that we would, we would go this way anyway. But it's compounded by the fact that the spiritual influences over nations are pushing us this way as well, right? And they have developed an affinity for the way things are. And part of our job is to tell them it doesn't have to be that way. Not all of them are going to believe us. Not all of them are going to make that decision. And so spiritual evil is going to use those who are willing to stay under their control and their manipulation to also help impede us. But the point that I'm making to you is that we it will make a difference in how we understand spiritual warfare and the, the conversations that we have when we understand the roles that each of us are playing and, and how the table is sort of set from, from a spiritual perspective. So what does all this sort of come to? <laughs> The big takeaway, if I could leave you with one, is this. The kingdom is here. It's been here for a while, and it is continuing to take ground. It is continuing to take back what rightfully belongs to the one and only king. But as I look out at the way that the world is today, and I look at who's already already in, I'll be darned if it's just us that end up end up as part of, part of God's <laughs> forever family. There are so many more people out there who need to know this. There are so many more people out there who they have no idea what's actually going on, and it's our job to, to tell them. I hope that you feel that way. I hope that you understand not just the urgency, but even maybe the excitement of saying, I get it, I see what's going on, and I want to tell someone, because... I don't want them to live under that anymore. Jesus said in Luke 10 that the harvest is plenty. I believe it still is. But it needs people who are willing to step out and to actually have the conversations. To step out and to say, do you, have, do you realize what's actually going on? Do you realize the influence that you're under and that you don't have to be anymore? So last week we did a takeaway and we have some of those still left in case you didn't get one. We talked about sacred space and how in the Old Testament that literally equated to the dirt under your feet. But in the New Testament, it doesn't. We are sacred space because God's presence lives, presence lives in us. So there's a little bottle of dirt out there. As I said last week, the dirt means absolutely nothing because that's not how it works anymore. But it's a good reminder of what is now the reality. So if you didn't get one of those, feel free to take one. This week... There is an open box of a massive puzzle of the world. And unless you just grab a bunch of ocean tiles, which I would encourage you not to, grab a piece on your way out. Whatever you grab, wherever it is, if there's land there, you have just grabbed one of the nations. This is who we are to take this to. This is who God came to redeem, to bring back to him, to make the way it was always intended to be. So between those two things, I hope that you can have some reminders of the importance of this, of the urgency of this, but also as a way of remembering the role that you play and the role that the people in your life who don't know this play. It's God who's redeeming people back to himself and that's the good news that we're here to share. That's the good news that we're here to share. So I pray that you will look for opportunities to do that this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for just how it all ties together, God, that you have, you have been telling a singular story this whole time. And God, it is a story of epic proportions. The, the biggest stakes that could ever possibly be. And there are so many different factors at play. But God, you are in control of all of it. You have already won. And again, God, because you have created us to participate with you and you want that for us because it's for our good. God, you have allowed us to be part of this process. You have chosen to use us to share this news with others, to reclaim the nations back to you, to live with you forever, to rule and reign with you forever the way that you intended for it to be right from the beginning. And even though through our own choices, even though through the choices of your other creatures in the spiritual realm, God, those plans have been delayed, God. They've never, ever been derailed. Your will will be done you will win. And God, it's so exciting to know that we can be part of that and that you've allowed us to be. So I pray, God, that your spirit would fill us with confidence, that you would excite us, that you would give us hope and joy to, to find ways, even in just a few sentences, to, to spark spiritual conversations this week with people, to, to begin to look for opportunities and not ignore ones that come up, to share the good news about the way the world really is now with those in our lives because they need to know. They shouldn't have to live under this kind of influence any longer. And I know that some of them, if they just hear it, this will be the best news, the greatest news that they've ever heard because it was for us. So God, I pray that you would give us confidence. You wouldn't allow things like fear and anxiety to get in the way but that your spirit would Give us the words that it would direct us and that we would be utterly dependent on you to use us to continue to build your kingdom, to continue to conquer what is yours back to you the way that it will ultimately be in the end. Thank you for partnering with us. Thank you for choosing to use us. Thank you for loving us so much that you redeemed us so that we could once again be part of your family the way you always intended for it to be. We love you, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.